0: The Old Covenant reading for this morning is taken from the book of the prophet Ezekiel. Ezekiel chapter 17, beginning at verse 11. We'll be reading to verse 24 this morning, which is also the end of the chapter. The word of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came to me. Say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? Tell them, behold. The king of Babylon came to Jerusalem and took her king and her princes and brought them to him to Babylon. And he took one of the royal offspring and made a covenant with him, putting him under oath, the chief men of the land he had taken away, that the kingdom might be humble and not lift itself up and keep his covenant that it might stand. But he rebelled against him by sending his ambassadors to Egypt they might give him horses and a large army. Will he thrive? Can one escape who does such things? Can he break the covenant and yet escape? As I live, declares the Lord, God, surely in the place where the king dwells who made him king, whose oath he despised and whose covenant with him he broke, in Babylon he shall die. Pharaoh with his Mighty army and great company will not help him in war when mounds are cast up and siege walls built to cut off many lives. He despised the oath in breaking the covenant, and behold, he gave his hand and did all these things. He shall not escape. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, as I live, surely it is my oath that he despised and my covenant that he broke. I will return it upon his head. I will spread my net over him, and he shall be taken in my snare, and I will bring him to Babylon and enter into judgment with him there for the treachery he has committed against me. And all the pick of his troop shall fall by the sword, and the survivors shall be scattered to every wind, and you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig from the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the topmost of its young twigs, a tender one, and I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird In the shade of its branches, birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. Dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord. I have spoken. And I will do it. Here endeth the old covenant reading. The New Covenant reading is taken from the Gospel according to Matthew. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. We'll be reading through verse 43 this morning. Matthew chapter 13, beginning at verse 24. The word of our God. He put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables. Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what has been hidden since the foundation of the world. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples came with him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the children of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the close of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the close of the age. The son of man will send his angels... And they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Here endeth the new covenant reading. Please keep your place here in the gospel of Matthew as this will be the primary portion of God's word our morning sermon. When we read the gospel accounts, we cannot help but laugh at times at the misunderstandings of the disciples. Hopefully we're laughing because we identify with them and we see our own follies in their responses, but nevertheless we do laugh. I mean, after all, the disciples were traveling around with Jesus. They were spending their lives with him, hearing him teach, seeing what he did. And yet they kept getting it wrong over and over and over again. So we should ask, how can that be? And, And the answer is actually very straightforward. And it's also quite challenging to us. First of all, we should remember that the disciples were walking with Jesus... On the other side of the cross, on the other side of the empty tomb, on the other side of Pentecost. Beloved, if we did not have a completed canon of scripture, that is the entire New Testament, with all these events already taking place, and not only in complete Bible, but 20 centuries of Christians meditating upon God's word, studying it, and figuring out what it means to put it into practice, we would be confused an awful lot as well. But secondly, there is in fact another reason the disciples kept getting it wrong, and it's a reason that we share with them, that we have in common with them. See, neither the first disciples nor us come to Jesus as blank slates. Just listening to everything he says and logically putting it in its proper place in our thinking. Uh, That's not how it works. We all start with assumptions, presuppositions. uh, Assumptions about what the messiah should be like what the messiah should do well please put should in quotes there but it is our assumption and see our assumptions or presuppositions are like tinted glasses Uh, the glasses you have affect what you see if your glasses your lenses are tinted yellow the whole world is going to look yellow to you and if you come to jesus with wrong assumptions about who he is wrong assumptions about what he's going to do, you're going to misunderstand who he in fact is and what in fact he has done. Uh, That's just how it works. Now thankfully, we're not just left with that. The Holy Spirit is very much in the business of taking God's word and correcting our lenses so that we can increasingly see Jesus with greater clarity and increasingly understand what he is calling us to do in this world. As the Lord corrects our lenses with the word of God, we come to understand both the world and Christ with greater clarity. Now, one of the critical assumptions that nearly all the first century Jews embraced is that when the Messiah came, he was going to set the whole world to right, and he was going to do it quickly. Many of them even thought he was going to do it cataclysmically. That is, as far as we can tell... Almost every single first-century Jew thought that Jesus was going to do at his first coming what he was only going to do at his second coming. In this morning's passage, and actually in several other parables, um, Jesus is teaching us that this is not the way the kingdom of God comes into this world and grows in this world. Um, Jesus, as it were, is correcting our tinted lenses. Now, now please notice that I said our tinted lenses. Not their. Uh, Yes, their tinted lenses too, but also ours. We have the same problem. We have the same need to have Jesus change the way that we think. The truth is, this is not just something that our Lord's first disciples needed to learn. Even with the full canon of Scripture, even for those of us who have been Christians for decades we still find ourselves crying out, Lord, it's going really slowly. How long, oh, Lord? And then I look at my life, and I see how little progress I'm making. And I'm going, Lord, how can this be if your kingdom has already come and you are already at work in my life? right? How how can my progress in the Christian life be so slow? And why are so many of my neighbors still rejecting Jesus? Right? There's a lot of questions like that about why things seem to be going so slowly. And of course, why is there still so much evil in this world? Now, as you can expect, Jesus is not going to answer every single one of our questions. But what Jesus does do in this parables, the three parables we're looking at today, is he gives us a framework, a, a set of lenses for looking at our lives, looking at the world, that allows us to put all those questions in their proper perspective so we can begin to see things the way that God does. We're going to look at this morning's passage under three main headings. First, living with the weeds. Second, small beginnings, abundant growth. And third, the heart of the kingdom is the king. Let me give those to you once again. First, Living with the weeds. Second, small beginnings, abundant growth. And third, the heart of the kingdom is the king. We begin with our Lord's important instruction about how we as disciples are to live with the weeds. Now, you will have noticed that this passage this morning, we've already seen this before in Matthew's gospel is a sort of sandwich. That is, Jesus gives us the parable in in the first several verses. You can think of that as the first slice of bread. And then when we come down to verses 36 to 43, Jesus explains the parable of the weeds. You can think of that as the second slice of bread. And between the two slices of bread, Jesus gives us two very short parables. Parable of the mustard seed, parable of the leaven, and then Matthew adds a, commentary about why Jesus is teaching like that. That's the filling of the sandwich. Now, we're going to go through this passage this morning by bringing the two pieces of bread together first. But I want to tell you something that's important for you as you simply read the Gospels on your own. The sandwich is meant to be kept together. Now, if you go and look at um, sermon series preached by almost all other pastors you're going to find out that they preach two or usually three sermons on this passage, so each of these chunks is separated. If you go look at books on parables, you're going to find out they have separate chapters. Every single one that I've looked at has separate chapters for the parable of the wheat and the tares, the parable of the leaven, and the parable of the mustard seed. Some grab the last two together, but they separate it from the parable of the wheat and the tares. But Matthew and Mark, and more importantly God, intends us to read these together because they are mutually interpreting, right? So I want to encourage you to go against the crowd in your own reading, right? What God has joined together, let not man rend asunder. And so Jesus put another parable before them, saying, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping... His enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. Beloved, this is the reality of the kingdom of God, both then and in the age in which we live. Jesus explains, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed is the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. See, what Jesus is making clear is that his first coming is primarily a time for sowing. It's not primarily a time of harvest. There is harvest throughout history, but it's not primarily the time of harvest. At his first coming, the Son of Man, that is Jesus, has come to sow the seed, to nurture the seed, and to patiently wait for the seed to grow. Now, it is vital for us to see that God is already at work, right? This slow growth doesn't mean that nothing is going on or that Jesus has just gone away. Jesus Christ is at work, but he is not at work in a way that is going to be particularly satisfying to anybody who's expecting uh, that all this is going to get wrapped up by the time your children get out of high school, right? He's not doing it in a cataclysmic way so that we're going to see all the results, really quickly, in a dramatic fashion. Jesus is quietly sowing seeds and cultivating the field while he patiently waits for those seeds to slowly grow. Have you ever looked at a field, right? You just go out and look at a field where the farmer's growing crops and you watch them grow? I hope you're using time-lapse uh, photography if you're doing that, right? You can stare at the corn for as long as you want, it's imperceptible to the human eye to watch it grow. It grows really slowly over time. Jesus is saying that's what the kingdom of God is like in this present age. Right? This is the way my kingdom is going to expand in the world. Now, Jesus is not ruling out that there will occasionally in history be dramatic events where a large number of people is going to be converted at one time. I mean, you think of Pentecost, right? is a, is a real marker of that. But ordinarily... The way the kingdom of God grows in history is really slowly, in a way that's not flashy, that doesn't draw anyone's attention. The New York Times does not send reporters to cover it, and it's actually imperceptible to the human eye. That is the ordinary way in which God is growing his kingdom. And let's be honest, that frustrates us. Uh, We are not people who like to wait. Uh, We want the church to be purified, and we want the world to be discipled, And we want those things to happen right now. But that is not our Lord's plan. And to make matters worse, Jesus tells us that not only is the kingdom going to grow slowly, but the enemy, that is the devil, has sowed weeds in the field, which is both the world and the church. Right. So as the people of God grow up in the church, they're going to be surrounded by weeds. That's our immediate concern in this parable. These weeds are not merely way over there, right? They're not some easy-to-identify group that has an entirely different color that lives in another part of the earth. The, the The seeds for the weeds are thrown right on top and right next to the seeds that the Son of Man is sowing, and they grow up together. And initially, we cannot tell the two plants apart from each other. Well, where does that leave us? Our natural instinct as Christians, particularly as we take the kingdom of God seriously, is let's get rid of the weeds. Let's rip them up. In fact, that's what the servants of the Lord say in this parable. They, they, They asked their master, then do you want us to go and gather them? But he said no, lest in gathering the weeds you root up the wheat along with them. Initially, the wheat and the tares cannot be distinguished from one another. The difference between them does not become obvious until they mature and begin to produce fruit. Turns out that false disciples sometimes give really impressive or at the very least credible professions of faith, right? I mean, think of the most famous weed in all of history, right, in the kingdom of God. Judas Iscariot, okay? we, all, we all know Judas is a horrible weed in the kingdom of God. So Jesus, on the very night in which he's to be betrayed, tells his disciple, one of you is going to betray me. And not one of the disciples looks over at Judas and goes, it's him! Right? It's him! We always thought it was him. No, No, actually, right up until the time when Judas Iscariot publicly betrays Jesus in the garden, They all thought he was a genuine article. See, that's that's not just about him, of course. That's that's a message for us. We cannot see inside the human heart, and therefore we cannot easily judge whether or not someone else is one of the good seed or one of the weeds. And so Jesus says, don't rush to tear them out. Because if you do so, you're going to actually tear out the weed. At the very least, you're going to do some some meaningful damage to the visible church. So the first thing to realize is that we frequently cannot distinguish between the wheat and the tares, for only God can see the human heart. Second, we need to see how damaging it is to the church for us to be overzealous in trying to separate the wheat from the tares in this life. As Terry Johnson points out, the kingdom cannot be purged of tares. The church can never be made completely pure in this age. The cure would kill the patient. Now, naturally, that does not mean that we never practice church discipline. It does not mean that we don't make a a good faith effort to only admit those to the Lord's table who, in fact, are making a credible profession of faith. This passage is not the only thing in the Bible that talks about these matters. we have to take everything God says together to wisely apply it. But what this passage does teach us is we, not to, we ought not to be overly zealous and seeking to get all the weeds out of the church. That, that, that's a very straightforward application of this passage. I want to give you uh, two common ways that the church, particularly conservative reformed churches, because most of all we want to apply this to ourselves, actually do get a bit overzealous in trying to get the weeds out of the church first one actually has to do with the Lord's Supper. You know that you're in bad shape as a church if you turn the Lord's Supper into an ordeal or a terrifying thing to approach rather than a mean, as a means of God's grace. Right? That happens very commonly in conservative reform circles throughout history. There are denominations and there are certainly churches where only a small percentage of the people actually come and participate in the Lord's Supper because they're all thinking, yeah, I'm not sure, I'm not ready yet. Or the session is telling them, well, you know, we, we've heard 26 professions of faith from you, but, you know, have you really grown in holiness? We don't want you to come and drink to your own judgment. Beloved, that is not what Jesus has given us this means of grace to do. I should say that in the Dutch side of our tradition, um, it was not uncommon for people to be required to memorize the Heidelberg Catechism before they could become communicant members of the church. right? So you think about this issue of, of, on the one hand, making it hard to come to the Lord's table, and the related question of making it hard to make a credible profession of faith. We move from credible, to impressive, to really theologically informed. Right, so the Henneper Catechisms, you know, it's not up on the top shelf, but there's a lot of theology in there. People were required to memorize it simply to join a church. In fact, still to this day in Presbyterian circles, in our Presbyterian circles, it's not unusual for people to have to go through weeks and occasionally even months of classes before they're allowed to make a public profession of faith and join the church. And I'm saying that is a clear example of trying to be too rigorous and keeping people out of the church that might be weeds. How do we know that, right? How do we know this isn't just the opinion of your pastor? Well, we open up God's Word. And we read the book of Acts, and what we discover as we read through the book of Acts is every single time somebody says, I believe in Jesus, right? Jesus, I need you to save me. How long does it take for them to get baptized and admitted to the visible church? In every single instance in the book of Acts, it takes place that very day, right? Now, the reason for this shouldn't be too complicated, Jesus is welcoming this person and saying, this this man, this woman is my brother, my sister, ought we not in the visible church to do the same thing, right? If they're Christ's brother, they're our brother as well. Now, yes, it is true. We do need to give warnings to people, right? We, we, we do, the elders do need to be wise about admitting people. We don't just say, I need, come, everyone, come. We are saying you do need to trust in Jesus. You need to understand who he is and what he has done. But that's something you can explain to most people in, you know, 45 minutes to an hour, Three, four hours with someone is really all that it should take. And we do need to warn people to not approach the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner, right? That it is for those who are in fact trusting Jesus and therefore are honoring him. But we should never forget it's the cup of blessing that we bless, as Paul says in Corinthians, right? So, so our emphasis needs to be Jesus is bidding us in his astonishing grace to come and be fed to feast upon him by faith, that he would build us up and that we would become more and more like him. That's where our emphasis needs to fall. Uh, by the way, we should do that with great joy and with thanksgiving in our hearts. That, that's probably a good test for you as, a, as an individual. Yes, when you come to the Lord's Supper, approach the means of grace with soberness and serious. It is an awesome thing to draw near to Christ in this way but do you do it with thanksgiving in your hearts for what God has done for you in Christ? God is saying, yes, do it that way. In fact, throughout church history, uh, one of the most common names for the Lord's Supper is Eucharist, which is simply the Greek word that means the thanksgiving. That's how we ought to approach the Lord's table. Living with the weeds does not mean gloom and doom. It means rejoicing in Christ as imperfect people in the midst of an imperfect church with the knowledge that our Savior will one day cause us to be his spotless and perfect bride. We come with joy, not because of who we are, but because of who Christ is. Now, if the kingdom of God isn't going to dramatically explode on the scene and sweep everything before its path, what is it going to look like? I mean, if you only have this beginning part of the parable of the wheat and the tares, you might think that the entire world, and frankly, the entire church, is going to look a lot more like an overgrown field of weeds than it's going to look like a field of wheat. Is that what it's going to be? Jesus says, by no means. And so he gives us two very short parables that are to be interpreted together with this parable of the wheat and tares, that made clear that although the kingdom of God has small beginnings, it also has abundant growth. Verses 31 and 32. Jesus put another parable before them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his field. It is the smallest of all seeds, but when it has grown, it is larger Then all the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and make nests in its branches. Now, now let's not get sidetracked. Commentaries run down all the biology of this, right? But Jesus is not giving us a biology lesson. He's giving us an analogy. He's saying, look at this little tiny seed. That's what the kingdom of God is going to look like for you people, right? particularly his original audience he's talking to. Little tiny seed. So unimpressive. And we're going to bury it in the soil. You're not even going to be able to see it. Behold the kingdom of God. But that's not the end of the story. That little tiny seed is going to grow. And if you think about her herb garden, most of the herb plants are really small. When, when this mustard plant is fully grown, it's going to be the biggest plant in your garden. That's the nature of the kingdom of God. Small beginnings, but abundant growth. Now, now some of those in the crowd have experienced Jesus feeding thousands of people with just a couple of fish and a few small loaves of bread, right? They've seen Jesus do these astonishing healing miracles. And they're thinking, this could be the Messiah. This could be the King. And it's easy for them to let their imaginations run wild about how fast everything is going to be great, right? The food is just going to flow. We're all going to be wealthy. He's going to purify the temple. He's going to drive out the Romans. And, you know, those of us who have been following him around, we might be first in line to get the rewards. Right? They're, they're thinking this stuff is going to happen fast. And Jesus is saying, that's not it. That is not it at all. I am at work. My father is at work. But look at this tiny mustard seed. Do you see how very small and insignificant it looks? That is what you are going to get in the short term. The kingdom of God is going to look tiny and utterly unimpressive. Beloved, that isn't only true in the first century. Uh, In different ways, that's true throughout history. I mean, after all, if the kingdom of God is so important, what are we doing worshipping in an elementary school cafeteria instead of in a beautiful cathedral, right? The kingdom of God often looks unimpressive. Yet the point of the parable is what happens next. The present situation will change. Things will be different, unexpectedly and dramatically different. This tiny seed is going to grow into a great plant, one that will dominate the herb garden. What the kingdom of God is in our Lord's lifetime And what the kingdom of God is in our own day is not what the kingdom of God will always be. Verse 33. He told them another parable. Uh, The kingdom of heaven is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour till it was all leavened. Now, three measures of flour is a lot of flour. It's about 40 liters. Think about 10 and a half gallons. Now, I don't know how much baking you did over Thanksgiving, but I want to suggest that no one here has ever sat down at one time and leavened up ten and a half gallons of flour. It's a lot of flour. And the leaven is so small, you can hardly see it. You get in those little packages or a little little container. You can hardly see it. that's the point, at least the, the first point that Jesus is making. But Jesus also says something that's a little surprising. The leaven is hidden in the flour. That's actually not what we do with leaven. Uh, The NIV corrects it, as it were, to make it clear the leaven is mixed into the flour. But I actually think Jesus is making an important point for us. A great deal of the kingdom of God is hidden to our eyes in this life. It's hidden in the flour, but eventually it leavens the whole dough. Uh, Think about how those images go together of the mustard seed and the leaven. If the mustard seed in the plant is primarily about growth, the leaven is primarily about impact. Right? If there's going to be growth of the leaven in the dough, that's right. But the, the reality is, is the flour represents the whole extent of the earth. And Jesus is saying, it's just a little leaven. But in the end, it's going to transform everything. Right? The entire dough becomes leavened. And the kingdom of God will entirely transform the world. As Jeffrey Gibbs puts it, do not lose heart. God's reign seems to be small now, but in God's time, it will become large and all-encompassing. The mustard plant begins as a tiny seed that is buried. The leaven is hidden in the flower. The rate at which crops grow in a field is slow, far too slow to watch. Throw in the weeds... And if you are hoping that the world will be a much better place by the time that your children graduate from high school, then there is not a great deal of hope for you in this passage. However, if you are interested in being part of a movement to build a great cathedral, then you should know that Jesus Christ is building the greatest cathedral in all of history, and he is building it out of living stones. And indeed, he has called you through the Great Commission to take part in this work. Uh, Here's an interesting thing about the building of cathedrals in the Middle Ages. Although many craftsmen spent essentially their entire working lives working on one cathedral, almost nobody who worked on a cathedral actually saw it finished. Think about that. You know, in England, the typical cathedral took 250 to 300 years to build. And so people started working on it, and their kids worked on it, and their grandkids worked on it and their great-grandchildren worked on it, and they didn't see it completed. That's where we are with the kingdom of God. God has called us into this work of his great commission to gather a vast multitude of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation to be part of his church, and we will not see it completed unless the Lord comes back in our lifetime. If you're teaching Sunday school in this church... You cannot possibly know how the seeds that you are sowing today will develop in the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of the covenant children you have the privilege of sharing the truths of God with. And that's okay. Because what you can know is the one thing that truly matters. Jesus Christ is at work in you, and Jesus Christ is at work through you. And no labor done in the Lord is ever done in vain. We will only see the new Jerusalem in all her glory when Christ comes again to judge the living and the dead. For now, we labor in hope with the confidence that the master architect who is building his church knows exactly what he is doing. We labor in hope, but we also labor with patience as we look forward to that city whose builder and maker is God. What the young people in our congregation need to learn is not how to follow Jesus with joy and faithfulness in an ideal world. Um, I've got bad news for you. I don't know if this is really news. But in all likelihood, by the time you graduate from high school, the world then is going to look an awful lot like the world does right now. The church is still going to have weeds in it, and the world is still going to have weeds in it. You don't need to learn how to follow Jesus in an ideal world. You need to learn how to live joyfully and faithfully and productively for Jesus in the world as it currently is, knowing that by God's grace it is not the way that the world will always be. Let me say something to the young people here in their teen years or a bit older. Um, It is easy at your place in life, particularly as you transition out of high school and into college, to become very disenchanted with the church. Let me say that again. I don't want that to be a surprise to you. It is easy to become very disenchanted with the church. After all, Jesus tells us there's going to be weeds in it. And you look and go, why isn't it better? Eventually you'll look at yourself and go, why am I not better, right? But but, but you are going to be tempted to do that. What I want you to see here, what Jesus wants you to see here is this is not an accident. It it is not a fluke of this current age in the United States of America. This is part of God's plan to slowly grow his kingdom over time and to not damage the tender young wheat by being overzealous in tearing out the weeds. We labor in hope But we also labor in patience, we need to trust that the Lord of the field knows exactly what he is doing, and yet here is where math, yes, math, can be very, very encouraging, and I say that not just because I was a math major in college, Um, very small incremental growth, which compounds over a very long period of time, produces astonishing results. How does that work with the Kingdom of God? Well, you know, um, on that first Easter, the church was basically 11 men in an upper room. Today, one-third of the people on earth, roughly 2.4 billion people, are identified as Christians. Now, we of course know that not every one of those people is actively trusting and following Jesus. But but can't you see that what Jesus is saying here is actually coming to pass, right? It's going to multiply, slowly, imperceptibly. Every generation of the church has bemoaned what a sorry state the church is in. Do you realize that? Everywhere you go, you find all the great saints in church history, they always bemoan how difficult the church is in their own day. And the critics of the church are always saying, you know what, this is it. I mean, the church is about to go out of business. And yet it goes from 11 people to 2.4 billion people in 20 centuries in accordance with God's plan. See, Jesus Christ is building his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against it. As we read these three parables together, we are also reminded of another great truth. While Jesus commands that the wheat and the tares grow together in this present age, At the end of this age, there will be both a great harvest and a great separation. Jesus says, The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers, And throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears, let him hear. I do want to draw your attention to just one encouraging word here in this passage that I hope you'll mark in your own thinking. Uh, This passage as a whole, all three parables as a whole, are primarily about the growth of the kingdom of God in general. The quiet growth, but the very real growth of the kingdom of God in general. But here Jesus actually gives a word for us as individuals. Do you not sometimes become discouraged over how little progress you seem to be making in holiness? Beloved, thankfully, he who has begun a good work in you is going to bring it to completion at the great harvest of our Lord's second coming, every single genuine disciple of Jesus will be made to shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Beloved, that is you. And even more astonishingly, that is me. You have Christ's own word on it. With all this talk about the growth of the kingdom, Matthew does want to make clear that the heart of the kingdom is the king. Uh, There is, of course, a sense in which the farmer serves the field, yet in the grand scheme of things, we understand that it's the field that is supposed to serve the farmer and his family and his community, right? There's a right ordering of things. And so it is with Christ and the church. Now, remarkably, the Son of God came not to be served, but to serve to give his life as a ransom for many. And we celebrate that rightly. But we must not lose sight of the fact that we don't become the center of the universe. Right? Salvation is for our good, but it's for God's glory in Jesus Christ. We exist for the sake of God's glory in Christ and not the other way around. Verses 34 and 35. All these things Jesus said to the crowds in parables... Indeed, he said nothing to them without a parable. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter what was hidden since the foundation of the world. Jesus Christ, according to this passage, according to many passages, is the object of prophecy. He is that important. Indeed, all of the prophets pointed forward to Christ as the center and the goal of human history. What the Old Testament prophets long to look into, Jesus both accomplishes and reveals. Indeed, Jesus is far more than a prophet. Jesus can explain all of these things in advance because he is not only the prophet par excellence, he is the author of history who is bringing all of these things to pass Our ultimate confidence, therefore, is not in a plan, although God's plan is perfect. Our ultimate confidence is not in a plan, but in a person, the person of Jesus Christ, the one who has loved us and given himself for us. Therefore, we fix our eyes not upon the weeds, but upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, and we patiently labor in hope with these words on our lips. The church shall never perish. Her dear Lord to defend, to guide, sustain, and cherish is with her to the end. Though there be those who hate her and false sons in her pale against the forward traitor, she ever shall prevail. Even so, we pray, Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.